Today I'm speaking with Tamler Summers. You might know Tamler as one of the hosts of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. He's also an associate professor at the University of Houston. He holds a PhD in philosophy from Duke University, and he's the author of a very interesting new book titled Why Honor Matters. And today Tamler and I get deep into the topic of honor and why it might still matter. He certainly thinks it has more value than I do, so we agree on points and disagree on others, but the whole topic is fascinating and consequential, and I hope you feel that we have done the topic some justice. And now, without further delay, I bring you Tamler Summers. I am here with Tamler Summers. Tamler, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. We've done a bunch of podcasts together. I think mostly you, you and, and David Pizarro have been on mine once, and then I've been on yours at least twice, I think. There were two marathon sessions, and then there was, I, you, you came on when we had just a bunch of guests on All right. to say what you'd changed your mind about. Right, right. So for those who aren't aware, although I will have introduced you before this, you are one of the hosts of the Very Bad Wizards podcast, which I love and widely recommend. And you are a philosophy professor and the author of a book that was just published this month, Why Honor Matters. Yes, Why Honor Matters. We'll talk about the book mostly. I guess we could also wander off the book, but the, the book I, I just got a couple of days ago, so I haven't finished, but I've read enough of to know that it's quite interesting and, and relevant to many questions of how we we live both personally and how we organize society. You're especially concerned about the, the justice system, so we'll get into all of that. But before we do, I guess, how did you come to this defense of honor? Because this is not, this is, there's something rather archaic about waking up one morning deciding that we need more of an honor culture rather than less. How did you stumble on this problem? Yeah, I mean, this was one of those happy accidents that sometimes you get in academia where I did, as I think you know, my my PhD work, my dissertation, my dissertation on uh, on moral responsibility and free will. And I defended a, a skeptical view, much like yours. And I was particularly concerned with how our retributive intuitions evolved. Um, our intuitions that people deserve to suffer, that people deserve to be punished, deserve to be blamed. And so I was looking at a lot of kind of cultural and, and genetic theories in evolutionary biology. And someone recommended to me a book called Culture of Honor by um, Richard Nisbet and Dove Cohen. Richard Nisbet, a, a now kind of accidental rival of yours. Yeah. But this is a, just a fantastic book that they wrote. And their idea was that people in the American South, because they are descendants of the Scotch-Irish herders, they tend to subscribe to more of an honor culture than people in the North. And they presented a bunch of experiments that showed this. And so I read the book and, and, and their idea was is that these norms and these values tend to emerge in certain kinds of environments uh, with a particular ecology, with a particular um, kind of social arrangement. And 
that just led me to kind of explore those norms and the, the, the differences in the values that they had compared to non-honor cultures as it related to responsibility. And one of the things I found was they really don't emphasize control as much um, as a necessary condition for being responsible or blameworthy. In fact, you could be responsible for something that you didn't even do, but a member of your group did or a member of your family did. And so this became, for me, this huge project of looking at cultural diversity in uh, people's attitudes about responsibility and freedom. And so I, so I wrote a book about that. It's called Relative Justice. It's more of an academic book than this one. Um, but uh, at first, it was just sort of a, a kind of a curiosity. It was something that I thought was really interesting. And then I found myself getting drawn to some of the, the values in these cultures and recognizing the absence of some of those values in my own life and in the life of the United States. For better and for worse, but uh, I started to think for the first time, maybe for worse in a lot of ways, and that led me to actually start exploring the idea of a defensive honor, like a honor comeback, mm-hmm. um, re- reclaiming it in a way that reclaiming honor in a way that will sort of contain some of its dangers but harness some of its virtues. I mean, it's interesting because the dangers are so salient to me that I, th- I think we'll disagree on on many points throughout this conversation. Because I, you know, honor and certainly honor culture seems to capture almost everything we want to outgrow as a civilization. And yet, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to to many of your points with respect to what has been lost in our current conception of justice. I mean, I certainly, retributive justice has a, a lot that can be improved about it. The notion of honor does appeal to something very deep in us, and to forsake that appeal across the board comes with a price. I think we, we have to acknowledge that we pay a psychological price and, and a, a social price for just jettisoning this these apish values. So it'll be interesting because I, I think There'll be clear disagreement here, but there is a gray area, and, and, and I think perhaps even most of it is gray, and we'll converge on some points. So before we get into the, the details of, of honor, culture, and its application to, to justice in particular, what is honor, and how does it differ from its counterfeits like dignity or, or self-esteem? which really anchor more of our modern liberal values? Uh, That's, unfortunately for me, not the easiest question to answer. I think that part of the problem with honor, one of the reasons that people don't talk about it that much, even to criticize it, um, is that it's very hard to pin down exactly what it is. Um, And this is especially true in philosophy. There's, There's so little philosophical work on honor um, that it was hard to even find kind of a target or, 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 or a critic that I could hone in on in trying to, to write the book. It's, it's a messy concept, and 
it can mean a lot of things in a lot of contexts. Philosophers especially don't like their concepts messy. But I think this is one of its virtues, actually, is because I think its messiness as a concept is well suited to the messiness and complexity of our, our the the choices we have to make and the the relationships we kind of have the social relations um but uh, that's dodging the question let me just at least try to give some characteristic features of communities that are honor oriented um so one of the things you find across various honor communities is a heightened concern for personal reputation um and a heightened concern for group reputation. So there, I mean, we all are, we all value our reputation to some degree, but in honor cultures, that is uh, ramped up quite a bit. Um, And along with that comes a heightened sensitivity to insults and a heightened sensitivity to slights or challenges to to your reputation because if somebody challenges your reputation and you back down then your that's a source of shame in most honor communities uh, so there is this strong conviction that people should handle their own business in honor cultures that that they should stand up for themselves when they're challenged and not turn to third parties to resolve their own conflicts. And so that's why you have like stop snitching campaigns in the honor culture of the inner city and urban gangs and, you know, bit like in baseball and hockey players. I talk a lot about baseball and hockey because those are, I think are the most honor oriented sports. They know when they get into their beefs or feuds, they don't speak to the media. They don't speak to the league. They try to, there's a strong code that you have to handle any offenses against uh, or challenges or insults to the team themselves. You keep it all in-house. I don't know enough about baseball. I was surprised in your account of the beaning of a batter by a pitcher, the, the intentionally throwing the ball at him, is part of the culture of baseball to a degree that I didn't realize. I mean, baseball is a lot more like hockey than I realized. That's right. It really is. And uh, and it's kind of fascinating, the all the unwritten rules. And this is another feature of a lot, a lot of honor cultures is there's just a lot of unwritten norms and codes that go along that just are, that are part of the what governs the way people behave in these cultures. And they're constantly evolving. They're they're flexible. But um but but they're very internal, and so from out from an outsider's perspective, they can be difficult to understand. But yeah, I mean, you can hit a home run in baseball and walk a little too slowly, run a little too slowly around the bases, and then that will make you a target for the you know the next time you come up to the plate. There's just so many. It's it's a pretty Byzantine kind of and and dramatic and kind of fascinating set of rules that govern, you know, when you're supposed to get payback, when you're supposed to just take, you know, just accept that you're being hit by the pitcher because you understand that they have a grievance and they need to um they need to get their revenge and then get it over with and you can move on. 
And um, and that's very typical of honor cultures. And I think baseball and hockey are examples, in my mind, of successful honor communities because they're able to contain the conflicts and not let them spin out of control. Other features of honor communities, they tend to place higher value on virtues and character traits like courage, hospitality, loyalty, integrity, and and maybe this is one of the problems you're going to have with them, solidarity with a particular group. There's a real sense of collective identification and collective responsibility in honor cultures. Um, and there's a sense of tribal, like they're, they're tribal. They're, there's a, a real tribalism to honor cultures. But I think that word right now, the way it's tossed around today, doesn't capture the sense in which honor cultures are tribal. Today, when we speak about tribalism, we often mean, and I think sometimes when you speak about tribalism and people like Pinker, and it, we, we often mean people identifying with an ideology, like a political ideology or a racial or ethnic ideology. But in an honor culture, there is this sense of collective identification. There is this tribalism, but you're identifying with actual people, not, a, not, a, not an idea. Um, actual people, the people in your community who you know and who you interact with on a day-to-day basis. And so that's the sense in which honor communities are tribal. There are two examples that come to mind that really crystallize what is attractive about honor and what is obviously pathological about it. And I, I guess I'll just float both of those to you in it because they seem to articulate psychological extremes for me. So, I mean, and there's one you reference in the book, you might reference both, but I saw one you, you talk about the satisfaction that awaits anyone who watches YouTube videos where bullies get pounded by the people they were they were targeting. There's a, actually a, a site or a, a thread on Reddit called Justice Porn, which wraps up some of these videos. So if you watch these, especially if you're a guy, I, 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 you know, being a guy, I only know what it's like to actually see it with the, with the brain of a, a man. But I imagine women feel some of the same, if not the same, satisfaction here so that the prototypical case is you know so there's some thug you know, on the sidewalk who is harassing people as they pass and eventually he picks the wrong person you know who turns out to be a professional boxer or an MMA fighter and just gets destroyed it's a perfectly encapsulated moral circumstance. It's really like a, just a mini morality play in like two minutes because this person's culpability is absolutely clear. There's no question that this guy, if anyone deserves to get pounded unconscious, it's this guy. And then it happens and it seems like a perfect result morally. And again, so it has the feature of there's no appeal to a third party. The person who is threatened is defending himself in some cases, herself. Okay, there's some, some great videos where women, you know, wind up destroying the, the, the guy who's harassing them. Those are especially satisfying. And it's hard to see what's wrong with it except when you scale it to the rest of society. If you're, if you're going to run a society this way, you have to acknowledge that 
the full chaos and dysfunction of vendetta and vigilantism is the result. And civilization, you know, as you mentioned Pinker, you know, as he's pointed out again and again, in large part depends on our outsourcing the use of force to the state. And yet these videos would be very different if they just entailed somebody, you know, getting on the phone and calling the police and watching the police show up and arrest the guy, which is how it has to work in an orderly society. As a counterpoint to this, I would say that almost the the reductio ad absurdum of honor as a force for good is that the concept of honor killing, which you see in, it's very widespread in the Muslim world. It's not only there, but in, in traditional societies, it's often imagined that the honor of the family is fatally threatened by any sexual indiscretion on the part of any of the women in the family. So if a man's daughter refuses to marry the person he's chosen for her or has sex out of wedlock or just is caught holding some guy's hand to whom she's not married, in these societies and in in these communities, even within our own societies, you often hear about a father or a father and a brother killing a young woman for the imagined offense to the family's honor that has been given here. And so, you know, if you could see a YouTube video of that, there'd be none of the satisfaction for anyone standing outside of of that circumstance. You know, I'll just give you both of those examples to react to. Yeah. Okay. So let me take uh, the justice porn one first, and then I'll address the honor killings. I mean, certainly nothing in this book is anything but horrified by honor killings, and I take it really seriously as a problem. But let me first go back to what makes those videos so satisfying. I think the way you framed it is that it's perfect justice because this bully gets exactly what he deserved. I mean, assuming that it is a guy, which it almost always is. And um, and I think that it's it's even a little bit more than that, or it's it's significantly more than that, because you could imagine just a stranger punching the bully, just kind of a bystander, an impartial bystander punching the bully. And then that's not as satisfying. What's especially satisfying about those videos is that a person who was going to be a victim, who's going to be bullied, stands up for themselves. and the sense of respect that comes with that self-respect, respect from the community, respect from the people who are watching. I mean, it's palpable and you can see it and it actually it's tangible. And sometimes it even comes from the bully. Sometimes even the bully respects the person that just knocked them out because they stood up for themselves. That's a very common dynamic. And that is exactly what is lost when you marshal out these kinds of conflicts to some impartial third party. That's why, you know, I say in the book, it's not justice porn. It's it's not even remotely justice arousing to, you know, have the bully be taken away by a security officer or the principal and get suspended or even expelled. You know, at that point, it's like, well, maybe the bully, maybe the school needed to do that because uh, of the harm that that he was causing, but that's that's sort of a, a the lesser of evils rather than uh, an assertion of self-respect. 
Now, sometimes that's not possible, and that's the problem. That's the problem with honor cultures, is sometimes the power imbalance is too great, and you can't stand up for yourself, and you need third parties to come in and prevent great injustice. And that's where this idea of containment comes in. But we shouldn't lose, and I, this is what I, one of the things I feel like we've lost, we shouldn't lose or reject the value of standing up for yourself, of, of being willing to take a risk that maybe you will get your ass kicked or something, but at least you are showing that you can't be pushed around and you're not immediately turning to a third party to handle a conflict that is that directly involves involves you okay so that's that's the, the the justice porn one that's the easier example for me honor killings i think are an extreme example of one of the problems with honor which is that there is very little restriction on the content of honor norms so all honor groups have norms and codes that determine how honor and dishonor are allocated within the community. And those, there are some commonalities, but there are also a lot of differences. And there's nothing within the sort of honor morality that constrains what those codes are. So if you have a community, like certain cultures, where just the suspicion or the reality of extramarital sex on the part of a family member will reduce the honor of the family. That will make the family dishonorable. And you called that imaginary. And it's imaginary. It's, it's not imaginary for them. Like they, are, they are dishonored and they are treated poorly by the people in that community. Now, that's a fucked up. Are you allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, indeed, you are. That's a fucked up norm, right? That's a fucked up way of allocating honor and dishonor, um, and especially dishonor or shame in this case. But that's, but that's what happens in these communities is that the family honor and all the privileges that come with being an, uh, an honored member of the community and all the um, the shit that comes with being a shamed member of the community that will happen to the family unless they act in the way that they feel they need to have that they need to act and that. And, you know, often they don't want to do it. You know, often it's, it, it's like a duty. It's like some sort of, uh, weird, perverse duty, moral duty that they feel like they have to kill their, the sister that they love or the daughter that they love in order to preserve the family's the 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 family's honor for generations. And so this is a huge problem with honor that we don't have those kinds of restrictions about what the norms can will be that determine how honor and dishonor are allocated. And that's another goal of containment is to make sure so you know in in my world if you find an honor community where this is their way this is their value this is their way of of allocating honor and dishonor then you just then you don't allow that 
So you do need some kind of um, higher authority that will enforce a minimal respect for human rights in a way that would rule out honor killings. But again, that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. That doesn't mean that you, the fact that there are honor killings in the vast minority of honor cultures across the world and throughout history. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of cultures that find this to be morally acceptable or not dishonorable to kill a family member. The fact that that exists doesn't mean we should throw out honor and all the motivational benefits that come with it. I guess the thing I would argue here is that the the only thing that would value honor appropriately, morally and psychologically, and the only thing that would contain its perversions would be some kind of consequentialist understanding of its effects on individuals and on society. So, I mean, the reason why it's bad to have notions of, of male honor that extend to the sexual behavior or even the sexual misfortune of women in the family. So, I mean, you know, as you know, honor killings even happen when, when a girl gets raped because she's viewed as sullied by having been raped. I mean, that's like the perfect case of moral lunacy where you, you know, a father kills his daughter because of the shame that has been brought to the family over her rape. So you would want to argue that that kind of honor is pathological on the grounds that it creates immense human misery for no good reason and doesn't create any benefit that outweighs that misery. Whereas in other cases where you're talking about things like hospitality and the kinds of moral heroism that can be motivated by things like honor and can't quite be motivated by its cousins like self-esteem. Or dignity, yeah. Or dignity, yeah. So that, and then you want to argue for its place because it does good for us. But I, again, like even, even going to the, the best possible case, or at least the best case we've mentioned so far, which is these justice porn videos, there you can argue that there's a higher norm to which even people who are chock full of honor would adhere in those circumstances. So for instance, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about self-defense and, and violence, and you know, I've spent a lot of time training in martial arts, and I'm, I'm surrounded by people who, are, who have a tremendous amount of martial honor, but because they have so much honor and so much experience, I mean, these are you know, world champions in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you know, SWAT team members and Navy SEALs, I mean, people who, are just, who, who have absolutely no doubt about their ability to handle situations of, you know, interpersonal violence. These are people who, when they, you know, walk around in the world and see behavior of the sort that, you know, we're seeing in those videos, they're not the guys who run up and punch the bully in the face because, one, they have absolutely nothing to prove from that contest. I mean, they, they know they can punch the bully in the face. If they decline to punch the bully in the face, they will not lose sleep that night wondering what it says about them, right? They're not going to be racked by doubt about their own martial abilities. They see these things in very pragmatic terms, and they just realize they have a lot to lose if things go haywire. You know, they've, they've been in enough fights themselves that they know what follows. They know, you know, you punch a bully in the face and, you know, you, you know your, your hand gets cut and you've got his blood in 
in your wounds, and now you have to worry about whether or not you know you need an AIDS test. There's the possibility of getting arrested and having witnesses misunderstand what happened there, and now you have you know criminal or or you know civil charges against you. There's a huge hassle awaits you if you get involved in any of this stuff, and so when you talk to people who understand human violence really deeply, these are not the people who you see meeting out vigilante justice in those kinds of videos, and nor would they if when you talk about what they would do in those situations. This becomes especially true when you imagine what it's like to, to walk around armed. I mean, you know, people who I know who carry concealed weapons, you don't get into shoving and punching encounters with strangers when you have a gun on your belt because you're then two steps away from having to decide whether you're in over your head and now it's now it's escalated to a, a lethal encounter with all of the legal ramifications. So people who are walking around armed are often just the first to just dial 911 and, and not go near situations like that. Right. And that, I mean, at a certain point, the consequences do become too dire to do the thing that I think honor cultures and honor codes tend to promote, which is to handle your business and, and, and not involve uh, some sort of stranger or a third party. I mean, I want, uh, but, but to respond to your, to your claims about the Navy SEAL people, the jujitsu uh, experts that, that you know, that's a very common feature of honor cultures that if it's clear that they can, if they needed to, if called upon, uh, respond to some sort of insult or challenge to themselves, then they often don't need to. I mean, the main, the whole, the whole reason some of these honor norms on this, as, this aspect of honor norms evolved is to give people an incentive to preserve a reputation that means you can't be messed with, right? And they have that reputation already. They have nothing else to prove, as as you say. But Tamla, except they might only have it in their head in that context. I mean, so if, if you imagine you're just, you're traveling with your wife and you're in a bar that you've never been in before and will never be in again, and you don't look like some colossus who would scare people at a glance but you're a you know a navy seal or whatever who has no doubts about his ability to to protect himself and his wife and you might even be armed say right and so somebody at the bar challenges you and even insults your wife like the prototypical case where you would have as a man you would feel tempted by you know a million years of of hominid evolution at your back to defend yourself and your partner, that is precisely the situation where it's most tempting, where people who have this kind of discipline see the downside and just walk away and and actually don't save face in that context. The bully has the satisfaction. But there's nothing, there's no community to save face to there. These are strangers, as you say, so there's no real incentive to save face because nobody knows who they are in the first place. There's no reputation to either uh, lose, preserve, or augment, right? And I don't know, like, I want to interview one of these people right now and ask what would happen if they're at a bar with their wives or their daughters 
and somebody does insult them or seems physically threatening or starts to hit on one of their wives, I don't know if they're going to, if they're really going to walk away from something like that, if they feel like the consequences of engaging are, that it's not going to lead to gun, a gunfight, which most bar fights don't lead to gunfights. Um, and most, uh, and most conflicts don't lead to anything worse than just somebody getting their ass kicked. Obviously there's, there's what they think would happen or should happen. And then there's what would actually happen when push comes to shove literally. But, you know, I've had many of these conversations and I know what people aspire to do in those situations based on what they consider to be a higher ethic that even, even does preserve this notion of honor. I mean, the, you know, if, you, if you've come out of a, an honor culture like, you know, the Navy SEALs, right? I mean, so the Navy SEALs are badasses. They have, the, you know, their training has many of the features you, you describe of an honor culture. Yeah, I talk about them a lot in the book, actually. But the net result, when you, when you try to, when you export that to living in a, in a more cosmopolitan society, it becomes reduced down to a kind of higher ethic, which is, it would be a kind of failure if it's a failure to have avoided conflict that was in fact avoidable. And avoidance is still a kind of master principle there, given all of the uncertainty that comes with conflict. And yet it is, there is a kind of, I mean, if you're honorable enough, if you're secure enough, and I guess this is where self-esteem maybe swallows honor, if there really is no threat to your view of yourself when backing down from a challenge, then you, you're, you're free to do it in a way that somebody who is more threatened isn't. The person who's easily goaded into a fight that he can't win just because he finds it so intolerable to lose face, you know, that's a person who's just a monkey being manipulated by eye contact and insults. Yeah, I mean, so I think we, we agree about this in this sense where there's nothing about honor that suggests that in every context you need to act in a certain way. I mean, this is one of the best things about honor codes and, um, and honor values is how flexible they are. And so in contexts where standing up for yourself or standing up for your family or standing up for your friends isn't appropriate, according to their codes, then they're not going to do it. And you're right also that an, you need a certain level of self-regard and confidence in your abilities that you won't be lying awake in bed for the next two weeks kind of thinking about how you should have uh, stood up to the person or how you should have said something or how you shouldn't have just walked away and listened to them taunt you or whatever it is. You know, if you have that level, this is, I think, it's, this isn't just true when it comes to violence. This is true in most aspects of life. When people insult you in a way that you don't feel like they have the standing to really affect your reputation and the way you view yourself, then it's, it's easy for that to just glide off of you. But when you're in a situation where you do feel like your self-respect is at stake and you do feel like your reputation among people, amongst people you care about is at stake, well, then that's a different story. But in the kinds of situations you're describing, it, 
it doesn't seem like either their self-respect or their reputation is at stake here. So yeah, you absolutely in those kinds of situations can do the thing that will, uh, you know, not lead to some kind of unpredictable calamity or something like that. And in, in some ways, it's a point of pride. It's like a kind of a warrior value to be able to have the kind of self-control that you don't get triggered like that in situations when it's not warranted. I mean, that is a big part of warrior culture, a big part of a code. I mean, you know, you see this with samurais is restraint, not giving in to violence when it's not called for is as much of a virtue as being violent when it is called for. The real concern with honor as a, a major plank in one's morality is that it creates a kind of attractor state where incentives get all screwed up. And, and you're, the problem is that it is, it is dependent on how others view you, or at least how you imagine they will view you. And then that begins a kind of spiral of needless norm enforcement, which becomes highly non-normative if you if you stand back outside of that culture and look at the, the consequences. And so there are many examples you give in the book. One example, which I often think of here, is prison culture, where incentives are, are so badly aligned that even good people will reliably turn into monsters simply because there, there is no alternative, given what everyone else will do to them if they don't prove that they can be monsters. Right. You have to project a kind of almost insane toughness so that you're not taken advantage of and, um, you know, and, and punked. And, and, and that's true for people who just aren't like that, who aren't disposed to that, but that they have to make that part of their identity. This is true. I, Elijah Anderson, a book I quote a lot in the book, the sociologist Elijah Anderson and his book, Code of the Street. But this is also true, I think, of young kids in certain urban neighborhoods. And, you know, these are kids that they, they want friends and they want to have a normal high school experience. They want girls, but they also want to uh, not, not be sitting ducks for the more aggressive kids in the neighborhood. So they have to establish some kind of reputation for toughness so that they're not taken advantage of and thought to be weak. And again, even if that's not who they are, even if that's even if they don't have a kind of disposition for violence or aggression, they have to uh, they have to project that, and they have to do it. This is just their environment. This is just the environment in prison. You have to project that kind of image, and and when it's successful, they can do it and not have it swallow up their identity entirely, um, because there is this kind of tricky point, equilibrium point, where you've shown that you're tough enough that you can handle any challenges and insults that come at you, but you don't, but nobody feels like you need to go any further than that. And then they'll just leave you alone. So if you can project this image of being violent, if called upon to be violent, then you don't actually have to engage in acts of violence and you won't be the victim of violence. But if, you, if you're not able to do that, then you're more likely to be a victim. 
Right. But so all of that seems to be an advertisement for some prior stage of humanity that we are wise to have outgrown, at least outside of a prison or outside of a gang or outside of a ghetto that's crime-ridden. Or These are all places we are busily leaving, both as individuals and who are lucky and as societies, which are structured along different lines. And yet you seem to worry we're leaving something critical behind in that flight. We're leaving the values that come from how to survive in those kinds of environments, because we have not, as a society, figured out a way to extinguish all these kinds of scenarios and social environments where people will be threatened in this way and where your reputation can ensure that you'll either be left alone or that you'll be a kind of a, a victim. And, you know, while the fact that there are prisons and the conditions in prisons, which are abhorrent, and the fact that there are these really poor neighborhoods where people are desperate, that's obviously that's a bad thing. But that doesn't mean that every value that comes from those kinds of environments and how to handle yourself in those kinds of environments, that can actually be a, a, a real positive that we shouldn't lose just because we're so worried about the kinds of conditions that these environments have, poverty or prison. Um, I, I mean, a, a good example is, I think, the, the military and, and the soldiers there, they develop a kind of code and a, and a strict honor code in the Navy SEALs you were talking about, right? They, they have a code that is crucial to them, important to them, um, involves collective accountability, collective responsibility, um, never leaving a brother lying out in the field, right? And then they leave those kinds of environments, but they retain the values that they acquired in those environments and the kind of environments they go into and the kind of environments that necessitate having those kinds, embracing those kinds of values, they're, they're often really dangerous and something normally we would want to avoid. But the values that they bring out of that is something that stays with them for the rest of their lives. And, I, and I'd be surprised if you found any Navy SEALs or really military anywhere saying that they want to turn away from honor and the kind of honor values that were instilled in them when they were at, at, at war or in boot camp or wherever it is that, that they really started to internalize it. Mm. There are just these other parts of the, the honor picture that seem dispensable in the end, and, and maybe we can purify this notion of honor to something that is, is compatible with, with a more modern, liberal, consequentialist value system. But you mentioned tribalism briefly, and also the notion that, uh, of kind of collective responsibility for things, so that you know, even, even if, the, if you do something terrible to you know, another person, he or even a member of his family could retaliate against you, obviously, but not even necessarily just against you, but anyone 
close to you. So, you know, if, if you kill someone, well, then, then their family can kill your brother, say, as uh, in retribution. And then somehow honor makes sense of that instrumental violence where you're, you're targeting someone who's actually not responsible for anything here, but because of their association with the responsible party, it's deemed legitimate to target them because of the effect that will have on the person who you actually do have a grievance with. See, I disagree with that uh, interpretation of collective punishment and collective responsibility. I don't think it's instrumental. It often has, it often achieves instrumental goals, like, you know, showing that the family is not to be messed with. But I think in honor cultures and true honor cultures, they think it's just. They think if someone from your group, I mean, in, a, in an easier to relate to example, when you get into a beanball feud in baseball and the opposing pitcher hits one of your batters, if you're in the American League, that pitcher isn't going to come up to the plate. Um, so you're going to just hit another guy on that team. And yes, there's instrumental value in doing that to show the other team that you can't throw at your players, but there, there's also a sense that this is the right thing to do. This is the just thing to do. That if, if that team has a pitcher that will do that, then everyone on that team is accountable for that. And I think you know, that maybe seems irrational, certainly from a perspective that we come from where individual responsibility is the only thing that can possibly matter. And as you believe, and I used to believe, you can't even really make sense of individual responsibility, moral responsibility in the kind of dessert entailing sense. Um, that just seems totally insane. But I think there's a lot of moral advantages to that kind of attitude. And I think you can see them when you think, look, it's not just about punishment. It's not just about getting revenge on, an, uh, on some family um, whose brother may have I injured or killed your family member. It's also about like making up or compensating somebody for something that your family member did right? It's that same instinct, that same norm that encourages, that motivates people to say, look, I know it was my brother who harmed you, but my brother can't make it up to you. My brother can't make this right, but I can, and I feel obligated to do it. Yeah, that resonates with me. And the only reason they feel obligated is because they feel that sense of collective identification, that sense of collective responsibility. Well, even though I didn't do it, I had no control over whether my brother did it or not. I still feel an obligation to try to make it right, to try to, to make up for what my brother did. And you see that in honor cultures quite a bit as well. So it's not all of the dark side of these blood feuds and Hatfield and McCoys and these long multi-generational uh, cycles of violence. It's also a sense of of justice that, yeah, it's not just you. You're responsible for the people around you. And that also, as a side benefit, encourages a healthy amount of self-policing within groups. Because now you know that if one of your 
group members fucks up, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to pay for it in some way. I'm certainly open to the utility of all of these ideas and social structures. Again, the cash value for me morally is always the consequences of thinking in these ways and obeying these, these various norms. And yeah, so I mean, you allude to my view of free will as, as undercutting any notion of real responsibility in, in, the, in the ultimate sense, or as it's imagined to exist by people who believe in free will. But you would think that's like ultimately just as irrational to think that somebody is individually responsible as some for for an act that they did as it's just it's no more rational to think that than it is to think that you're responsible for what a group member did right i mean according to your view except for the consequences of holding people responsible in those cases i mean the reason why it makes sense to hold you responsible for much of what you do is that doing that reliably modifies what you will do in the future. Whereas if I held you responsible for what other people did, it can't actually modify what other people will do in the future, unless you are a lever that influences them reliably. Your brain will, will influence another person's behavior less reliably than his brain will. And that's why the locus of, of control is the other person. Well, that depends on the situation. If, if, if you have a tight community where there's a lot of self-policing and a lot of um, people keeping a lid on their fellow group members' behavior, then there can be plenty of utility in punishing. Then the question is, what is wrong with instrumental violence? Like, what is wrong with kidnapping the children of a bad person? and, you know, threatening to torture them to influence that bad person. Well, you don't have to be a Kantian to see that there's something unsavory about living in a world where at any moment innocent children can be captured and, and tortured so as to influence their parents, you know, because we've, we've just discovered this is a great way to influence parents. Other things begin to shift once you start treating people as props in this way. I mean, the reason why a focus on the individual seems to be such a good moral heuristic so much of the time is that it is what it is to treat people as ends in themselves, right? And that seems to maximize things like the golden rule and the actual concern for both the effects of your actions on others and how those others will be changed and how they will behave in the future. But these are empirical claims that you're making, right? So um, it, it, you could certainly imagine worlds where it just wouldn't be true that holding the locus of responsibility at the, at the individual level um, doesn't produce the best consequences. And there are probably environments where, like actual environments, not just imagined environments, but actual environments where that's not the case. I mean, that's the whole Nisbet and Cohen idea of why honor norms arose in the first place is the environment was conducive to them. There was very limited third party enforcement. Um, there was very high co cost of getting your um, family or group uh, being a victim of a raid that could completely destroy the wealth of, of your entire family because they're herders and the animals are all they have. 
So if someone steals the animals, they don't have anything anymore. And so um, you have to project a kind of image that makes, that deters people from making the attempt to steal the wealth of your family. And by, and projecting that image requires that you don't just hold individuals responsible, you hold um, potential rating groups responsible for what an individual within that group will do. So, I mean, you might be right that individual responsibility leads to the best consequences in all environments or... No, it is an empirical question, but these environments that seem to function by other norms or you know, honor-based norms are these kinds of environments that are more akin to a state of nature or a moral emergency or some psychological experiment that we are quite happy not to be living in. So whether it's a prison or a gang or a war or a condition of such scarcity where if there's a challenge to your status, everything you've worked so hard to attain is, is ruined, there's no social safety net, there's no leviathan to come in and help and restore order. It's all on you at all times, otherwise your children will be devoured. The further we get from those conditions, it seems more and more we discover the wisdom of outsourcing uses of force and coercion to a third party. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is probably where we might have a point of disagreement as well, because I think leviathans have serious costs. And I think you see that in the United States. We have such an aversion to violence that the response to an uptick in violence in the 70s and 80s led to a prison population of 2.3 million people and led to some of the conditions that we talked about earlier. And that and that has sort of trickled down to school discipline policies, um, zero tolerance policies in school for for violence, which I try to show has created a kind of school to prison pipeline. And many other people have shown it um, better than I have. And I, I think we're wrong to assume or to congratulate ourselves that we live in this perfectly enlightened culture when the costs of having such a strong central enforcement system are so high and they're often invisible to us. I mean, we don't see the people who are in prison. We don't see what they have to go through. We don't see the suffering that's caused. And that is a direct result of us deciding to marshal out every conflict that we get into to a specialist and being unwilling to take the risk of being a victim to violence so that we have to get everyone who has a propensity for that off the streets for a long, for a long, long time. So I, I think that we have to reckon with the costs of what this kind of uh, ability that we have to just not not handle when we're challenged ourselves, that, that that's come at a, at a tremendous cost. And it's a cost that we don't often experience 
but that people behind bars experience way too much. And often the, the racial disparities there are completely un- unjust. I'm sure you agree with this and unjustifiable. Well, so that's interesting. So I think your description of the incarceration problem, at least here, I, I, don't, I don't know about in your book, leaves out the important variable of just how insane the war on drugs has been. If you didn't lock people up for truly victimless crimes in this society, then the people who would be in prison would be the people who had proven that they were willing to use violence to, at minimum, rob others. But what percent of, of people in prison, of those 2.3 million people, uh, do you think are there for dr- nonviolent drug crimes? I would think it's probably at least a third, but I would bet it would be closer to half. It's like five to six percent. No. So drug sentences in general are responsible for 16 percent of prisoners in state prisons, which is the vast majority of the prisoner population. And only five to six percent of that group are low level and nonviolent criminals. So it's not just drug crimes that have has that got- changed. Has that changed recently, or is I mean, are they? Have we just quietly let out a lot of nonviolent drug offenders, and I didn't notice, or were there never that many in prison in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I think just how insane it is that we lock people up for possession of marijuana or various other drugs has led us to think that that's a bigger part of the problem than than it actually is. I mean, I think it's kind of a self-serving myth to tell ourselves that if we just didn't lock up people for nonviolent drug crimes, then our mass incarceration problem would go away. In fact, you know, there's there are a couple of books recently, I don't have them handy right now, that shows that if we really want to make a dent in the prison population, we need to not just stop putting people in prison for nonviolent drug crimes, but reduce the amount of time that people spend in prison for violent crimes. I just Googled this, so here clearly is the basis of my confusion here, which is that in federal prisons, half of people are locked up for drug offenses. But as you say, there's only 200,000 people in federal prisons and nearly one and a half million in state prisons. And there, as you say, 16% have drug crime as their most serious offense. I've clearly been advertised to with the federal prison data and not the state prison data. So then you sound like you're doubting the wisdom of locking up people who have proven their willingness to use violence against innocent people in our society to steal their stuff or rape them or, in the extreme case, kill them. Why would you be skeptical about that? I'm... (laughs) I'm not uh, skeptical of locking up rapists or murderers or uh, or people who are uh, offenders, uh, you know, of serious assaults. I I do think we have to think long and hard about how much time we put people in prison for some of the less serious violent offenses. And, you know, one of the big things I promote, really the thing that is most exciting to me in the book and that I'm most excited about pursuing in future research is 
restorative justice as a way of addressing both nonviolent crimes, but also violent crimes and allowing victims and offenders to get together and determine within boundaries how they can resolve the the conflict that that they had and i think this with violent offenders there's when this has been implemented when restorative justice models have been implemented it can be extremely effective both in involving the victim and making the victim feel less alienated by the justice system and also really effective for the offender in understanding the consequences of their the personal consequences of what it is they've done. And so it is an effective way of promoting uh, or, or just getting the, the, the offender not to offend again. You see really low recidivism rates among people who have gone through the restorative justice process but that does mean that they will get less prison time in many cases than they would have otherwise. And so, yeah, it's not that you never put these people in prison. It's that you, you think long and hard about the length of their sentences and whether the kind of justice system that we have is the best way of handling those kinds of offenses. I would be the first to admit that given that most people who go to prison will be coming out of prison and back into society, we want prisons to be very different places than they are, and we want to think about what the goal of incarceration should be. Given that prison tends to function as a kind of graduate school for criminality, the system is totally broken because these people come back into society having been given no tools by which to change their, their lives, and they've been given additional tools by which to harm others. So let's just talk about the justice system and how it's broken and how, how would you differentiate retributional justice from restorative justice? Yeah, so this is where we might find some common ground, I think, because I think both of us are, are no fans of retributive justice and that ideal as it's both practiced and promoted within the United States. I mean, your problems with it are it assumes a level of autonomy that in, uh, in, in the criminals that is uh, not something that they, that they actually have, um, a level of free will, a level of uh, moral responsibility that when you examine it, um, doesn't hold up. For me, I, I just think this whole idea that we have where the, you take a, an offense and you look at the severity of the offense and you look at the blameworthiness of the criminal and you match that to a specific punishment and then everyone who has committed a crime with that degree of culpability is supposed to, this never happens in practice, but supposed to get that same punishment. That way of understanding criminal justice, which is the, the, the way that we embrace in this country, both at a theoretical level and at, at least is aimed for on a practical level, though not achieved 
but I just think it's it's based on uh, a kind of a, an illusory understanding of autonomy. So I agree with you there, and it just it just doesn't hold up rationally. I mean, there's just no there's no basis for it, and the effect of it is to exclude the victim entirely. The victim becomes this kind of vessel just to determine the severity of the wrong. Um, but after that, their needs, their desires, what they want, that's completely excluded from the criminal justice process. And so restorative justice is uh, this recent movement that has gained some momentum, especially in Australia and New Zealand, maybe some parts of Scandinavia. And in the United States has gained a lot of momentum in the schools um, to great effect, but not as much in adult criminal courts. It's, it's making some traction in, in juvenile courts. But it's a, it's, it's a movement that I, I, I can't endorse enough that, um, that takes direct aim at how depersonalized our current criminal justice system is and our current disciplinary approaches in a wide range of domains of life um, are. So the, the, the essential principles of restorative justice are, are these. First, they view crimes or offenses as conflicts between individuals and only secondarily as violations against the state. So if you commit a crime in the United States, you go on trial, it'll be not you versus the person you harmed, you versus your victim, but it'll be you versus the state or the people versus Tamler Summers. And restorative justice brings it back. You know, no, it's not the state that got assaulted. It's me that got assaulted. It's the victim that got assaulted. And that's how restorative justice views the conflict as it actually happened, not as, um, as, as if it was some sort of imagined transgression against a undefinable population of people. So that's the first sort of essential principle. The second is that the primary aim of criminal justice is to repair the harm that was done, to resolve the conflict and also to restore harmony within a particular community. And that the goal of the legal system should be to enable the relevant parties, the stakeholders, they sometimes call them, the relevant parties, the victim, the offender, the families, and other community members who are affected, that they can all actively participate in an attempt to find a resolution to that conflict. Uh, and to resolve it in a way that is meaningful and right for, for them. This is something that Charles Barton, who's a big advocate of restorative justice, uh, says. And, it, and, you know, it's funny, it gets attacked uh, from all sides because it's so localized and because it has, it has sort of right now not too much theoretical grounding but when it's implemented, the effects of it are so tangible and so positive 
that you just have to either read a detailed account, sit and watch an example of a restorative justice mediation circle that it, and, and you just see the benefits of it and not just consequentialist, although I think there are, it's, there are definitely consequentialist benefits from it, but it just feels more just in the same way like the justice porn you know, the person, the, the, the victim standing up to the bully seemed like that was the perfectly just outcome. When restorative justice works, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing. And, um, so it's something that I promote in the book in chapter six, I, I try to expose or illuminate the fraudulence of the theoretical underpinnings of our criminal, current criminal justice system and show how restorative justice can help us remedy those, uh, those problems. But this, and this is also something I want to pursue in my next project in more detail. So I, I would say that if there are benefits to it, that they have to be consequences. I mean, you just have to extend your notion of what a consequence is to include its seeming more just and all of the satisfaction we get from that experience. Well, that's fine. I'm happy to frame it in those terms. So let me give you some examples here that, and just track me through how restorative justice would respond to them. So, you know, somebody breaks my hand, you know, either through negligence or through, you know, criminal intent. It's obviously a bad thing for me to have my hand broken, but it doesn't completely derail my life. But if I were a surgeon, you know, whose livelihood depended on the use of both hands, that would be a, a very different sort of crime or debt between me and the and the perpetrator that would would be would have been formed there and you can think of other cases where you know i'm you know one of the greatest pianists on earth and now that i have a broken hand i'm no longer one of the greatest pianists on earth and never will be again let's say so you can imagine in that case the handbreakers of the world would experience a very different outcome in court, depending on whose hand they broke and the size of the debt incurred, is that what? I mean, it would depend on what the pianist or the doctor wanted. You know, the you're right that the harm there turns out to be greater than the offender could have possibly foreseen. I take it that's the point of this story that. The offender had no idea that he was actually assaulting a pianist or a doctor that depended on the use of their hands. He's just in, into breaking ordinary hands and didn't realize he was, he right. was breaking extraordinary <laughs> hands. But, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that the doctor or the pianist will be more vindictive in how they want the matter resolved. It's possible that they are, but that they will be. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that just get worked out in in the mediation process. And I should say that these kinds of mediation processes, they take their inspiration from the way that honor communities and honor cultures, tribal cultures handle conflicts as as ways of trying to I mean. You know, you you take that person in a criminal justice in the current criminal justice system, and the pianist still has broken hands, and now the offender can't really do anything for them. 
right? They can't talk to them. They can't explain why they did what they did. And they're just going to end up going to prison. The pianist is no better off, right? But if, at least if you have this kind of circle where the offender now is trying to make right what the offender did, and it will be hard in that kind of case, but at least there's an opportunity to do that in a way that our current criminal justice system denies, again, both in practical terms and in, in, even in theory, right? Even in principle, it just shouldn't matter what the victim, all that matters is what could the offender have possibly foreseen when committing this crime? Well, then it seems like in this paradigm, you should be able to, if you can compensate the victim, I mean, given that the, the locus of concern here is the victim and not society, then, you know, rich offenders should be able to just compensate victims and make them whole and then have no further punishment, right? So if, if Bill Gates runs around breaking people's hands, he should just find out at the end of the day what their hands were worth to them. And presumably everyone has a price, even surgeons, right? You know, you know here's, here's 10 years worth of lost wages or 100 years worth of lost wages or double that. And, you know, now you can just forget about being a surgeon. So two things on that. I mean, first of all, I, I think that not everybody is just going to be satisfied with getting money for people aren't concert pianists just for the money, right? So they're not going to be satisfied with however much money Bill Gates would give them. But, but secondly, the kind of restorative justice model that I favor does have a, a, both a floor and a ceiling for the kind of punishment or the kind of outcome that can be reached through the restorative process. So if there's a certain crime, say physical assault, breaking bones, a stab wound or whatever, there might be a kind of a minimum prison sentence that will have to be served. And, and certainly in every restorative model, a maximum sentence. So even if you have a really vindictive uh, victim who wants the highest possible punishment, they can't go beyond whatever the ceiling, it, where the ceiling is set. But so, so, so you can't, if you're a rich offender, buy your way out of any kind of crime. Um, there will always at least be the floor level punishment, at least according to the model that I, that I subscribe to. Now, that said, you know, <laughs> if the rich offender can help to compensate for what they did in financial ways or in other ways, and the victim feels more satisfied as a result, and the offender kind of learns the implications of what they did as a result, that seems to me to be a good thing. And what needs to be resisted is this idea that everybody has to get the same punishment based on what they knew at the time they committed the offense. I mean, that's, that's the idea that's the obstacle, that, that is the obstacle to restorative justice, because that won't happen. Now, it's ironic in some ways that that's an obstacle because it certainly doesn't happen in our current criminal justice system. If a rich offender commits a crime, they're going to get a much lighter sentence in our current system 
than a poor offender committing that exact same crime. I mean, that's just the practical reality of our criminal justice system and the kinds of lawyers you can afford. The difference between a high-priced lawyer and a public defender is stark. So you're going to have that anyway, but the, the thing that our criminal justice system can boast is, at least in theory, that wouldn't be possible or that wouldn't be considered just. Whereas with restorative justice, even in theory, you can just definitely have different punishments for similar kinds of offenses, right? Based on what the victim wants and what the offender wants and how they resolve and the outcome that they want to reach. Um, you, you just have to swallow that. But I think that's something that we that we accept in every aspect of everyday life, right? I mean, uh, the example I use in the book is if I go to a conference and my friend goes to a conference and we both cheat on our wives in, under similar circumstances and then my wife throws me out, but my friend's wife decides to take him back and, um, and make the marriage work, Call it an open marriage <laughs> or just like, no, you, I'm taking you back. But, you know, it's gonna, I'm going to be a little more vigilant this time. No more conferences, w whatever that outcome is. Meanwhile, I'm out on the street and my wife won't talk to me. You're in the next justice porn video. <laughs> right. Like, nobody thinks, oh, that's not fair that they were treated differently for the same offense. It's like, yeah, of course, the the. The, the victim here, or the, the, in this case, the wives, get a say in how this outcome is going to be resolved. And nobody thinks that's radically unjust in any way. And all I'm saying is we extend that general kind of flexibility and that incorporation of the victim's desires and interests and needs into uh, other punishment processes, whether it's in the school or the juvenile courts or the adult courts. I'm definitely sympathetic to parts of this picture, although other parts worry me. So the, the clearest win here is that it gets rid of the notion of, of a victimless crime. Just that, I mean, that just goes completely out the window, which it should have you know, hundreds of years ago, because a crime is really a debt formed between the criminal and someone. but it seems to me that the debt can also be, it also extends in, in the case of, of most crimes, maybe all crimes, beyond the victim to the rest of society. And that, and that seems to, I don't know that if restorative justice denies that outright or just puts less emphasis on it, but it seems to me that if you're actually worried about the consequences of human misbehavior, you want to know how people are affected in the aggregate from you know, various crimes. And I bet there are surprises in store for us. If we could get the data, we could be surprised to learn that some things that we consider to be fairly innocuous are actually much more harmful and confounding to human well-being, you know, year after year than things that, that strike us as just pure instances of evil that for which people should be locked up forever. Well, this so, is what I think, like, I, I the, the floor and the ceiling are set by these kinds of consequentialist considerations you're mentioning, right? So I, I do think that no matter what the victim wants, if there is a crime that 
causes harm to society in such a way that the person going free based on what the victim wanted, based on maybe the victim forgiving the, uh, the offender entirely, that's just too damaging to society. Yeah, imagine a rapist who who's who's raping only the most forgiving Christians, right? <laughs> right, so, exactly. You know, you just go, you just go through the neighborhoods raping people who will see it as as the core of their moral integrity as to to fully forgive the the perpetrator. Well, then, sure, you still have to admit that there's a cost to right, of course, the rest of society having rapists run free. Now, I will say that this example, though, is is one that often gets tossed uh, in a critical way towards restorative justice, um, usually not in this context of the, the damage you're doing to society by letting rapists go free, but more the secondary victimization of the rape victim. So it's, it, it's bad enough to be sexually assaulted, but now you have to face the person who did it. But in fact, you know... Oh, so you're saying that just so I understand you, you're saying that the process of uh, just kind of going through the restorative justice procedure where the victim has to weigh in on what he or she wants, that process is often is often worried that that is sort of re-victimizing or, or an additional cost being imposed on the victim? Yes, and that's the worry. And in, in some cases, that worry is, is real and actual. In a lot of cases, though, there is a degree of empowerment that sexual assault survivors or victims get when they face their offender in one of these kinds of conferences or mediation centers. Um, so they did this uh, survey in Canada recently. 89% of violent crime victims wanted to meet their offenders, and 70% of rape survivors said they would welcome the opportunity for victims to be able to meet with their offenders in, in a kind of conference setting. So these kind of empowering effects that can come are, I think, surprising and something that you can only fully appreciate if you are if you either get a detailed account of these encounters or you, you, ex, you know, you're actually a witness to them. But, um, but yeah, of course, to go back to your point, you need to set these boundaries that take into account what kind of message you're sending to potentially future criminals, right? To future criminals who might be thinking about acting in a certain way. So that's where the floor for punishment comes. And it's also where the ceiling for punishment might come as well. Although I think the ceiling is more set by, uh, yeah, by, by consequentialist considerations that concern the criminal and also the effects of having a really high prison population. Well, what if it's just the case Let's say we do this, you know, vast analysis of human well-being and its antithesis, and we discover that the most costly crime at the moment is online fraud, you know, identity theft and just stealing people's passwords and their data and 
And the cost is imposed in all kinds of ways that we feel, but in ways that we just, we, we don't understand how these micro costs are aggregating. So, you know, we're just, everyone's had the experience of trying to manage all their passwords online and hack back into their life. And untold hours are, are squandered with all of us failing to do this. And, you know, people wind up dying because they're, you know, trying to get into their iTunes account and they can't remember their password while they're driving so they can listen to an audio book or whatever it is. They, you know, drive into trees. And this happens because, because there are billions of people suffering these little glitches due to all the people who steal passwords and steal stuff online. This is happening to people by the billions every day, year after year. And it just turns out that the price we're paying for having to maintain our passwords and in terms of lost economic prosperity and actual pain and suffering, it is worse than child molesters or anything else that is causing people suffering. So what if we figure that out? Would the rational and just thing to do be just to, to actually punish that crime more severely than any other crime? Well, I mean, it's funny that you're raising this in the context of restorative justice for a couple of reasons. Number one, that that's actually the kind of crime that restorative justice can't really handle because there's no real identifiable victims or there's so many identifiable victims that you couldn't have the kind of localized process that restorative justice is really effective. Couldn't we run the same calculation, though? I mean, if, if we all recognized, if, if it just were a fact that, you know, we're losing a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. to this misbehavior, and we all know what we could be spending that trillion on, because we can, we can translate money in, into the safety of our airplanes, the safety of our roads, the medical care that's not getting dispensed. I mean, we, you, can, you can translate it into mortality points. If there were no doubt about the, the, the actual consequence, couldn't we then just advertise to you know, the, the teenagers of the world, okay, there's the, it turns out crime is not what you thought it was. You, you all recognize that it's bad to hit someone over the head with a hammer and steal their wallet, but given how dependent we all are on, on the internet now and, and financial transactions online and everything else, any one of you who gets online and, and starts stealing passwords or infecting computers with, with viruses or malware, you are actually the worst person in society. Now, whatever you think about what you're doing, we're going to destroy your life if we catch you. Well, I mean, I, I, and so you and you would right, you would make the punishment for that, like as, as great as the punishment for homicide or something like that. I guess the second reason I'm curious as to why you're raising this in this context is that's exactly the kind of objection or it's sometimes framed as a reductio ad absurdum of consequentialist approaches to punishment, which is that it could lead to what seems like intuitively an unjust outcome. You know, let's say you could eliminate shoplifting entirely by just having like execution for shoplifting. If you just execute but it's a different example in the sense that it's us being surprised by the consequences of what is seemingly innocuous by comparison and then having to recalibrate because they are they really because we they actually are the consequences. I mean I think it would only be just again this is just kind of a thought experiment but 
it would only be just in my mind if we could successfully advertise this change in values. Surprise, surprise, we didn't realize that all of this good-natured fun you kids were having with your, your computers is harmful as it is, but, you know, planes are falling out of the sky because of what you just did on the FAA website. So insofar as that would be successfully communicated, then you would have to be, I mean, the, the, the mismatch ethically, or at least the concern, is that you could have perfectly good people who would have no reason to expect that they're causing this level of human misery, but in fact they are. And so to hold them accountable for that level of human misery seems unjust because these are not the kinds of people who want to harm people. They just want to steal credit card information, right? Right. No, I, I get the example and I get the sort of the idea behind it. What I'm not understanding is its connection to restorative justice. Or are we just, oh, it seems more a question about consequentialist approaches to punishment in general. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm wondering whether our sense of having, I mean, our sense of having been victimized is it may just be a definition of restorative justice that society can't be a victim. You know, one thing about restorative justice, nobody thinks, even the greatest proponents of it, that it can be appropriate for every conceivable crime or even every actual crime. There's just going to be crimes. And I think this kind of widespread fraud that affects, you know, hundreds of thousands of people you can't get 100,000 people in a, in a room to try to work out how to, how to make that up. I mean, you can have multiple victims. I think we saw sort of a, not exactly an approximation of restorative justice, but a baby step towards it in the Michigan State um, thing where the, the doctor told the gymnasts, and then in the trial, the, uh, in the sentencing process, each victim got a chance to express to the the victim impact statements. Yeah, yeah, they're they're in the impact statements about what happened to them and uh, and how it affected them. You know, that's a case where there are multiple victims, but still a sufficiently small number of victims that it's possible to even engage in that little baby step towards an actual restorative process. But then, you know, you can't do that in cases of widespread fraud or in cases where it really is society that's the victim and not uh, an uh, identifiable person. In that case, you just have to use whatever other approach you think is most effective. And I, and I think in that, in those for those kinds of cases, I'd probably agree with you that you, consequentialism is the right way to handle it. Nobody has interest in societies collapsing or airplanes falling out of the sky. And so you have to address that in the most effective way that you can. Right. But the restorative paradigm still is consequential, right? You're, you're asking the victim to give an account of the consequences for him or her and the consequences going forward. That, so like you're, you're at, you're, you care in this case what the victim wants to happen to the perpetrator to some degree. And if the victim, you know, let's say the victim is against the death penalty and would have her suffering compounded if her child's murderer were, were killed, then 
in a restorative paradigm, you want that taken into account because all things being equal, you want Absolutely, the victim yes. to, be, to be better off rather than worse. Right. But I again, I, I think there are consequentialist benefits, and I think you could defend restorative justice from a purely consequentialist perspective. The way I approach it is to recognize and embrace the consequentialist benefits. But to me, there's also separate benefits of just justice. Like I do think it's the most just outcome. And in a particular case, even if it didn't lead to the best outcome from a consequentialist perspective, I would still think it's something that we ought to embrace just for justice reasons. Well, that's where our meta-ethics collide. Now, it's, it's one of those happy, this is the thing, this is why I wish it, it was a, a little more widespread of a movement that it is. It happens to, I think, have both features. It happens to be, uh, in, in many cases, will lead to the best consequences for both society and for the people involved and be most just when it functions effectively. But I, 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 in a way that I think you don't separate those two kinds of benefits. Yeah. Why do you feel the need to separate them? Because it seems the need to separate them would only be evident if you could find a case where justice, the, the, the thing seeming just, was not a matter of the good effects of it seeming so on the minds of all involved and on the future behavior of people like ourselves, right? It's like, like justice, justice matters because it matters to people. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think in the, the second time you came on, right, we had this, we had a version of this discussion, except it took like three hours. Yeah, this could this could be two hours on this point. At, at a certain point, consequentialism and the kind of view that I'm talking about start to merge in a way that the distinction between them seems very hard to identify. I guess the kind of case that I'm talking about would be one where the victim feels satisfied, the community feels satisfied, but maybe the outcome isn't optimal for society at large. It's, it's not destructive for society at large, but it's not optimal. There is a optimal outcome that the, part, the relevant parties involved didn't reach. And had that been the outcome, you know, maybe the, the victims and the offenders and the, the, the family members would have been less satisfied, but society would be better off. In that kind of case, I would still, I would still endorse the restorative approach, even though it led to a less optimal outcome. Although, again, I think that often it leads to the better outcome. But even if it didn't, as long as the people involved achieved a kind of resolution that felt right for them, I think that that has kind of intrinsic value over and above whatever consequences it has for those people and for society at large. Right, right. Well, so I suspect you're smuggling in the collective benefit of focusing on the individuals in this case. So we all, all recognize we live in a world where occasionally we're going to be the individuals who should be treated as individuals and shouldn't just be part of some vast calculation that 
takes society at large as the, the locus of moral concern. So we want to preserve that world. We think that there's a good to society in the end, whether the calculation seems to work out or not, by treating people as individuals in their own case. But also, we're not, you're not spelling out what the difference is between the optimal solution for society and what was achieved in this case. And if that difference were great enough, well, then we'd all be forced to recognize that you know, the, the price was too high. That has to be like a, a hair's breadth. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I do think that there is a, so if the price was too high, that's the, that's the key, right? There can be a price, uh, there can be a consequentialist price for restorative justice, but it, I, I, I don't think that price should be too high as society. So if, uh, if the price is from a consequentialist perspective for society is going to be too high for the restorative outcome, then I think, yeah, then you have to go with the consequences at that point. Where I think we disagree, if we disagree about this at all, I don't know, I see you committed to even any price, a tiny price, is not worth paying for what would otherwise seem like a just outcome for the people involved. And I'm willing to pay some price, just not too high a price. And, you know, where that boundary is, is, is vague. I think I'm, I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that there's a, there's a price paid to just having to figure out what the price is. There's a price to be paid for not catering to our local sense of justice in many cases. And, and, and I think, you know, when in doubt, it makes sense to be willing to absorb those prices so as to satisfy the people who you absolutely know are involved and who are the most salient victims. You know, like the rounding error should always happen in the direction of helping people get what they think they want in the local case. It actually does kind of wind back to the apparent justice in a lot of those YouTube videos, right? Whereas like, I can recognize that in a better society, none of those videos would be possible because the bully would not have had the opportunity to misbehave and certainly... Or wouldn't want to misbehave or wouldn't want to take advantage of a weaker person. Right. Yeah. And the weaker person wouldn't have had to prove his courage in defending himself. And my consequentialist picture would have to account for all that is lost in addition to all that's gained when, when, you, when all of that changes. And so it's interesting to consider in a, a perfectly well-ordered society where courage is no longer necessary on some level, what is lost when we no longer have to develop courage? We would want to, in the service of, of some higher ideal at that point, we'd want to create artificial circumstances by which we developed courage because we would think that courage is probably still important ultimately. Yeah, it's part of living a good life. I, you know, the restorative justice thing, I was curious what you thought about it, because I think you are somebody that likes to, when you get into conflicts, um, handle them yourself. <laughs> Meet out rough justice. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> or complicate my life by trying. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like you didn't want to just have a social media fight with Ezra Klein. You wanted to hash it out. And now maybe it didn't work out in that case, but that impulse to try to resolve it and to try to address the grievances that you felt and that he might have felt like that's 
that's a good impulse. That's, I think, something that is worth preserving. And it's just something that is absent in how we handle criminal conflicts and even conflicts at lower levels. I mean, restorative justice in the schools is something new and and really po- it's a p- real positive development for handling the kinds of conflicts that inevitably arise in school. I mean, we're just not going to have that environment where there are no bullies, but you can have an environment where the tendency to bully is handled in a different way and where the bullies have to face up to what they've done. They have to face up to victims. They have to face up to other kids. And that's, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits just in terms of solidarity and community and the way norms and boundaries get clarified when you have these kinds of face-to-face personal interactions, you start to understand where other people are coming from and understand what the constraints on behavior should be in a way that just doesn't, you can't get if you're just suspended from school for a week. You know, that then you just get further alienated and your grievances just get um, greater. And if you're expelled, well, now you're out on the street. And nothing good is going to happen from that. So I I think there's a lot of, one of the things I think honor cultures get that we don't is some of the benefits that can come from conflicts, just in terms of bringing the community together and in terms of clarifying norms of what's acceptable and what isn't. A lot of times that can only really be internalized when you have these face-to-face encounters. Yeah, well, that, that's one thing we seem to be lacking, which you might have specifics in your book that I d- didn't notice, but none are coming readily to mind now. But it seems like honor cultures often have some mechanism by which someone can, can re-enter the, the tribe or the society in good standing, having done something dishonorable or something shameful. And, and, and it's one of the advantages of having very long and powerful levers to pull, even if they're anchored to something that seems imaginary, like honor or, or a you know, religious taboo or something else, is that you can have rituals of expiation that allow someone to kind of reboot the hard drive and get their life back together in, in kind of a, in a radical sense in the community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that we lack as a society. Not only do we have, do we lack ways of reintegrating offenders back into their community and back into society, we actually make it harder, right? You, we have the, the box of, uh, that they have to check that they've committed a federal offense in order to get a job. And then a lot of people just won't hire them because they, now this is after they've paid their debt and served their time. And they're still being punished or, or uh, uh, there's, the society is still making it difficult for them to reenter the community and survive without committing more crimes. And in honor cultures and in restorative justice, restorative approaches, there, are, there is always a stage for reintegrating the offender within the community once 
the the sentence has been served or the compensation has been achieved um, and everybody's satisfied. They also devote resources to reintegrating the offender and making them a valuable part of the community, enabling them to contribute to the community, maybe in ways that they didn't before. And yeah, that's not something we pay any attention to. In fact, we place obstacles on that happening. And again, that's one of the great benefits of restorative justice is that it does have that stage. It has the stage of determining guilt and innocence, the stage of determining the sentence or the outcome, uh, the resolution of the conflict, and then the stage of reintegrating the offender. How do you as a moral philosopher think about forgiveness and the restoration of a person's identity in society? So I guess let's just sharpen it up with a with an actual example. I mean, what do you think should happen to someone like, let's say, Harvey Weinstein, if he genuinely takes responsibility, insofar as we can make sense of that philosophically, for his crimes and near crimes, and just seeks to re-enter society with a, a genuine intention to repair some of the damage he's done, what does moral philosophy and your focus on it do for your apish intuitions about what society should allow in that case? Well, so Harvey Weinstein is a little bit of a tough case because, first of all, it does seem hard to imagine him taking responsibility in the way that you describe in a sincere way. And also, I don't know the extent of his offenses. But let me give you a ex related example. So you know this guy, Dan Harmon? who does Rick and Morty and who is the showrunner for Community, um, that, that, that show. So he was called out also for one of these Me Too by, by a writer who was on Community for being, for, for sexual harassment. Essentially, he harassed her as one of his writers for a year or a couple years. And she called him out on, on Twitter and he has a podcast and he went on the podcast and he he just like I guess he spent nine minutes. If you listen to it, it's pretty interesting describing what he had done, taking full responsibility for it, describing the ways in which he understands now that he harmed the the writer and not wanting not asking for forgiveness, but just apologizing and holding himself accountable for it. And so he does that. The podcast goes out and she she both forgave him publicly and she uh, forgave him privately or uh, they talked privately. He gave her a personal apology and they hashed it out. And it's a it's it, that and then that's that seems like a perfect example of how when you actually bring the people together, you have this outcome that is satisfying for the person who was primarily harmed and uh, a way for the offender to really reflect on what it is that they've done and take responsibility for it. And I don't know what the analog would that be for Harvey Weinstein doing that. Again, I'm not exactly sure what 
a 90 minute podcast <laughs> right it would <laughs> exactly it might even have to be like he might even have to do like a video of himself or something basing himself in some way i don't know but uh but that seems like a on a smaller scale maybe well surely an example of exactly how this kind of thing could be handled and once it is handled that way and and she was very clear on twitter that it's important for her to publicly forgive him um and it was important for him to publicly affirm the wrong that he did and why it was wrong and why it was harmful. Now that message goes out to the community that this kind of behavior is unacceptable, but it doesn't mean that you're banned for life. You know, it doesn't mean that you have, because if you have no hope, if you have no hope, of, then what incentive do you have of even trying to make up for what you've done if nobody's going to? ever pay attention to you or or if everybody is going to condemn you until you go to your grave. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like we're in a culture where there are for for many things there there is no hope, right? So we just we close the door to any possible future this person has among us for comparatively minor indiscretions or or even things that in a previous generation weren't even thought to be indiscretions. And then then you have other people who find a very different door having misbehaved terribly, but you know, that they it not only becomes a non issue, it becomes the basis for their future contribution to society. So for instance, I, I just did a podcast a few podcasts back with this guy Christian Picciolini, who was a former neo Nazi skinhead. And in his life as a neo Nazi skinhead he did a lot worse than than harass people. I mean, he was just going out and, you know, kicking people unconscious with his steel-toed boots regularly. It's actually a miracle that he didn't wind up in prison for a good long time. I mean, he was behaving in the in the most extreme way short of murder for years. And yet now he's a, you know, someone who's who is a deprogrammer of in most cases neo-Nazis and and white supremacists and he gives TED Talks, and he comes on my podcast, and he's been profiled on 60 Minutes. He's, some, he's like a darling of liberal society now because he's turned his life around and is now giving back. But it's interesting to consider that, that how hard that would be for someone whose misbehavior is actually, is, is by any measure, less sinister. It strikes me as, as hard for... Like Louis C.K. or something took. Yeah, like Charlie Rose or something. I mean, Harvey Weinstein might be setting the bar a little high, but I mean, strangely, it would seem like it would be harder to prove your sincerity in a mea culpa if you're Charlie Rose than if you were a, you know, a neo-Nazi skinhead covered with swastika tattoos who has a change of heart. Well, I mean, so part of it also is the good, and you should, I think, embrace this as the consequence as a consequentialist the good that he can do there he can reach young white supremacists or proto white supremacists in a way that other people can't there's, there's an analog here with people with gang violence like the most effective programs that reduce gang violence recruit former gang members because they're the ones that have the sufficient respect of the people involved that they'll actually listen to them. And so, um, you know, this guy, 
that, that, that you had on, he can, he can do a ton of good. And if you, as you, as you say, it's easy for you, for us to see the sincerity of what he's doing because of how extreme, how extremely messed up his worldview was before and because of the severity of his misbehavior, just how immoral it was. Um, and so it's easy to see that he has changed and it's easier perhaps to welcome the kinds of effects that he has now that he has been redeemed in this particular way. It's a little harder, you know, Louis C.K., he's not going to go around and, and start preaching to young comics to not whip their dicks out, right? Like, that's not, that's not going to have the same effect. It does suggest a, a possible next comedy special he could attempt. <laughs> exactly. The scared straight version of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look what happens. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think... It, we're we're early in this Me Too process. It's it's early, but it does seem like people tend to rebound from these kinds of things eventually. And maybe it will take longer than we'd like for some of these people, based on what we think the severity of their offenses were. But Americans do like a comeback story. They do like a redemption story. I wasn't expecting to talk about Me Too with you here, but I'm interested to know where you would draw the line here, because I, I think there's a line, I, I don't know where it is, but there's a line to the left of which we're not going to see any of these people again. And if you're on the right side of that line, you will have a comeback. And I, I, I think, I suspect because of how he responded and because of the nature of the offenses, Louis C.K. is on the, on the right side of that line. I mean, and also given that he he was a comic. But I would expect that Charlie Rose and Kevin Spacey and I mean, certainly Harvey Weinstein are on the left side of that line and there will be no comeback. Yeah, I mean, the, I would certainly bet on Louis C.K. making a comeback. Charlie Rose, I mean, there, it's also a question of what they have to offer the world. And I think Louis C.K. can incorporate what he did into his art in a way that people will find ultimately appealing. But having Charlie Rose come back and do more of those interviews that were already getting kind of tired at the time. So, I mean, part of the, part of the equation, whether this is fair or not, is, well, what's the benefit that can come from, you know, artistically or in terms of what kinds of norms you can broadcast or the ways in which it would be healthy for everybody involved uh, to see you take responsibility and be reintegrated into the community. And with someone like Charlie Rose, who's already on the backside of his career, it just it's a little harder to to imagine. But I could imagine a sort of a younger version of Charlie Rose in the earlier part of his career. And again, I don't exactly know what Charlie Rose did I know he was creepy, and I know he pro sex I, he was accused of sexual but but he wasn't accused of sexual assault, was he? Uh, not that I'm aware of. No, it was, but it was just kind of just the professional impediment that's posed to so many people working under him. And I mean, it was just he was kind of a way across the line in terms of the power imbalance and the harassment side of this thing in a way that Louis C.K. wasn't. But I was mean, so like like Kevin Spacey's the 
easier example because it's easy to see that he could have he could have done many more movies and many more seasons of House of Cards or whatever it was, and the people perceive a real artistic loss there. I mean, they they would want Kevin Spacey to be back to be back in film for at least another decade, but I don't think there's any chance of that happening. I mean, I would put the chance at you know near zero for that. I mean, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Gun to my head, will Kevin Spacey ever appear in a in a film or TV show again? In, in a film made in in the United States, I guess you. I'm sure <laughs> I you mean, can find some Roman Eastern Plansky, European look at Mel country. Gibson, yeah. Look at well, that's a. I mean, Roman Polanski is an interesting case because I think by today's standards, I mean, you know, one would have thought even yesterday's standards, he should not have had a career at all after that. I mean, that was. What's alleged in his case is completely insane. Although I think, oh, actually, this this actually this does connect does. to our previous it conversation. Does. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. So so take me there. Hasn't his victim forgiven him? And and doesn't she think that that his travel ban is is unwarranted? Yeah, she's been petitioning the judges to lift the ban for a long time, and they refuse to do it again out of this idea of justice. I mean, you know, you can't. It's it's hard to even defend on consequentialist standards, because it's not like he poses a current danger to the world or that people will see him being allowed back in the United States and say, oh, I guess it's okay for me to um, have sex with a 13-year-old in Jack Nicholson's hot tub. Drug and sodomize a 13-year-old in a hot tub? Yeah. So that's a a question of where, that is a case where her wishes weren't taken into account after many, many years you know, of her trying. I think you're on the wrong side of this. This is a perfect example where the victim's wishes and even the a person's capacity or like, likelihood of reoffending is not the right measurement of justice. I mean, I, th- I think if, if you're someone who, now again, I'm assuming that what is alleged here is, is in fact what happened, but let's grant me that, that he actually did drug and anally rape a, I think it was a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old. If you do that, whether or not it seems likely you're going to do that again, you know, based on, you know, your age or anything else, the society has an interest in making an example of you. Sure. But society has made an example of him, right? I mean, so I, I don't think that if the victim had, dis- had wanted to do this two years after the fact, that I, I would have a different opinion about this. But now we're talking about 40 years after the fact, 30 years after the fact, where the victim has had plenty of time to think about it and, to, and, and now what she wants, I think, has to be taken into serious account. Isn't also part of the problem is that he never admitted, did he admit anything or there's, there has been no mea culpa from him, right? I don't know the details of the case. I know he he fled. So that's part of that's another part of the problem is that he didn't he did not take responsibility in a way that you would want somebody who's being reintegrated to take responsibility. And I think he's doing that for legal reasons perhaps. And who knows what sort of private interactions they've had if they've had any at all. I have no idea. But um but yeah, I mean, that's one where I don't think it's a no-brainer, but I do think this idea that we shouldn't take her wishes into account at all, that seems 
completely wrong to me. All right. So this is the difference between our moral philosophies. I want to see Roman Polanski in the next justice porn video, and you want him to come back to the U.S. and make movies from the comfort of his home in Beverly Hills. No, I mean, like, I could see him, and he could be in the next justice porn video, getting his ass kicked, and then also make movies, <laughs> you know? Yes, they should be in the <laughs> same movie. Yes, you, you could integrate them into the same project. <laughs> same, exactly. That's the next Roman Polanski joint. I will pay to see that <laughs> and to hear it reviewed on your podcast, which you you guys do. That's some of the, your most delightful work, the the movie reviews that you and David do. So I, I recommend that to our listeners. Well, that's what I really wish it was, is a movie review podcast, because I love film and I love going, doing deep dives. So, so yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Sam. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure. Just to tell people where to find you, where, what do you want them to know, a Twitter address or anything else? At Tamler, just my first name is my uh, is my Twitter handle, as the kids call it. Or do they even call it that? I don't even know. I have no idea. The, ki the kids are 30, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and uh, right on Twitter. Um, they can go to TamlerSummers.com. That's my web page. And please consider purchasing Why Honor Matters, which should be available in bookstores and on Amazon and various other online sites. It's a book that I spent a lot of time working on and I'm fairly proud of. So, yeah, well, with justification. So I recommend it. Thank you. So thank you, Tamler. We will uh, continue disagreeing in public uh, on your podcast next time. That sounds great. Thanks, Sam. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website, at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.